Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Excellent, excellent. It's good to be gathered together in the house of the Lord this morning. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would fill us up and send us out. Fill us up with grace. Fill us up with joy. Fill us up with love. Fill us up with power. Most of all, O oh Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us up and send us out into this city. There are greater things to be done in this city. Send us out, O oh Lord, into our neighborhoods, Lord, that we might feed the homeless and clothe the naked, that we might build homes for the homeless, that we might do all manner of good just the way Jesus, your son, did. And that through that good, O oh Lord, you would be praised, not us, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be all the glory. So fill us up and use us to such an extent that the neighborhood and the nations give you glory and praise. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, uh, or last week, we thought about the first and the most important M, that is the message of the gospel. We are a community of people who are really only a community of people because of that message. Through that message of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and, and faith in that, we have been brought together now as a family. And, and because of that message, we, we are propelled, as we were just singing, to go. To make Jesus known to other people, to proclaim that message far and wide, and to gather other people into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. The second M in our five M's is mercy. So we want to be a congregation of people who not only spread the message of the gospel, but we want to be a congregation of people who show mercy to our neighbors. As we've been introducing these sermons, I've been, uh, in my own mind at least, I'll, I'll make this explicit, trying to share just a little bit of the history of our church for uh, many of you who don't, don't know that history, how we got started. Uh, when the Lord started drawing me away from my last pastorate uh, in the Cayman Islands to think about planting a church, I didn't know where to go at first. Living in the Cayman Islands will do that to you. You don't know where to go after that. <laughs> but during the time that I was praying about planting, we got a visit from a couple that a few of you may know, uh, Chris and Tessa Ambridge. It's a young couple that I had the privilege of performing their wedding ceremony some years before. They used to visit us in the Cayman Islands every couple of years in vacation. And it was during one of their visits that um, uh, Chris and Tessa came in the middle of our praying about planting a church and coming back stateside. I remember Chris was sitting in the breakfast nook, uh, and we were just having a conversation. He asked me the, what next question, what's next for you? And I said, well, honestly, Chris, uh, the elders and I here have been praying about whether or not the Lord would have me move back to the States and plant a church. And, and Chris asked in that, he's a very soft-spoken British gentleman, he asked in very soft-spoken, posh British accent, well, where are you going to go do that? He said, I don't know. 
we had talked with a number of people about different options. This process got started in part because Shailene gave me a call and said, hey, man, I've got some brothers who are, are clicked up and ready to plant if you would think about coming to plant with us. So Shai and I had prayed about planting, and Shai really wanted to go to Philly, but, you know, it's Philly. <laughs> My good friend, uh, Tony Carter, is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. Tony said, man, if you know Tony, you know he talk like that. He said, man, you ought to go to Charlotte, man. Charlotte's a lovely little city. I, I like Charlotte. It's maybe a little bit too southern now. For years, there have been people telling me, man, you need to go to PG County. It's like Africa out there, man. (laughs) But the way they justified it always bothered me. Most of those folks would say, you need to go to PG County because it's like the most affluent African-American county in the country. I wasn't looking for affluence. I was living in a country full of affluence. And frankly, it scared me to death. There were other suggestions, but I didn't know where. When we were sitting in the breakfast nook, Chris that morning said in that little British accent, have you thought about Anacostia? <laughs> and I had two reactions like, what you know about Anacostia? <laughs> <laughs> but the second reaction was, I mean, I, have you ever had the experience where somebody says something to you and, and you have such an immediate and profound sense of the truth of it that you know it didn't come from that person, but it came from the Lord? That's what happened to me. I was just almost tingling when he said that. I said, Chris, I had not thought about Anacostia, but that just sounds right. But, you know, I tried to put it aside, think about other places, keep praying about other recommendations, but my mind just kept springing back to Anacostia. I would find myself working on sermons or writing something, and, and I would find myself stopping to Google news in Anacostia. and just grew stronger and stronger until the sense of calling to this place and the people in this neighborhood was clear to me. The Lord was burdening us to come to Anacostia. Because it's a neighborhood that's predominantly African-American. It's an inner city neighborhood with uh, all the sort of challenges that come with that. The need for resources, the, the need for people to move back into the neighborhood and to partner with those who are already in the neighborhood to, to see good things happen. And so the Lord just began to press us in this direction. And I don't know about you, but I, I can honestly say From that time that Chris mentioned that and that calling formed in my heart to this day, every day since then, almost five years now, has felt like being in the center, the perfect center of God's will for me. I am convinced we are where God has called us to be, doing the work that God has called us to do. In that process of thinking about how do you plant a church and what do we focus on, um, the Lord drew me to a particular letter of the Bible, and that is the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, a pastor in an island nation called Crete. And Crete, as we'll see in a moment, has a lot of resemblances to Anacostia. And it's part of why the Lord drew my heart, I think, to that book and why that book became a lot more precious to me in defining how it is we would minister together, minister together as a local church. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the letter of Paul to Titus, who was there ministering in the island nation of Crete. 
As we think about our second M this morning, showing mercy to our neighbors and our neighborhood, uh, I want us to hang our thoughts on, on three points, three observations we'll make from a couple of different passages in Titus. Number one, I want us to notice the, the bad works that make the good works so crucial. The bad work, bad works that make the good works so crucial. And number two, and we'll see that in chapter one, verses 10 to 16. Number two, I want us to think for a moment about the good news that creates good work people. The good news that creates good work people. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. And then third and finally, I want us to meditate a little bit on the good works that lead to the good life in communities. The good works that lead to the good life in communities. Point number one. Let's observe together the the bad works that make the good works so crucial. Look with me in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The book of Titus is written to a pastor serving in this place called Crete. Crete is an island near Greece. And when this letter is written, Crete has a reputation. You might say Crete is is pretty hood. That's one of the reasons I, again, felt so drawn to this letter and to the teaching in this letter. Notice why we might say that, the the bad works that are there in Crete. Paul lists two, really, two types. First of all, you had a lot of false religious teaching in Crete. Paul mentions two types there. They're the hard-headed legalists in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These folks don't submit to authority. They are insubordinate. They ran their mouths a lot. Empty talkers. They deceived others through their false teaching. Paul says this was especially true of the circumcision party. And those are people, a group of people who were Jewish, who were um, inside the church, who were teaching that in order to become a Christian, one first had to obey the law. That's why we call them legalists. And in particular, they had to obey the law of circumcision. Once we were circumcised uh, in in obedience to the uh, covenant of Moses, then then one could be considered a Christian. 
But Paul says this, if you turn back to the law in Galatians chapter 5, it's, it's of no profit to you at all. That Christ's sacrifice is of no advantage to you at all. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So this was a, another gospel, which was no gospel at all. It was legalism. And it's interesting, we have legalists of various kinds in our neighborhood, don't we? Think not just of legalistic Christian groups, but I think verse 10 is pointing to the Hebrew Israelites of Paul's day. We have Hebrew Israelites here who are all about keeping the Mosaic law. They use that to trip up Christians who are not well taught. They, they don't seem to understand that Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes and that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And in turning back to the law, they turn to their destruction. For no one will be justified by the law. So not only were there hard-headed legalists on the one hand, but notice there were some who were also early versions of prosperity teachers. You see that in verse 11? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You see their motivation there? It's game. It's shameful game. They are trying to pimp the gospel. They are using false religion in order to make a profit off of people. And you know where a lot of prosperity ministries get their start? In poor neighborhoods around the world. Feed upon the poor with the false promise of money and wealth and materialistic lives. And those ministries, you know what the pattern is? You go to a poor neighborhood, you dangle that before people, you blow up, and then you blow out to the suburbs. Leaving the neighborhoods poorer than when you found them. And isn't it interesting that, that legalism and prosperity preaching are, are really cousins. They travel together. They're close siblings. They, they both have the same basic logic, something like this. If you do X, then God will do or give you Y. The legalist says, if you obey blank, then God will accept you and bless you. The, the prosperity preacher says, if you obey or believe blank, then God will bless you and prosper you and give you blank. Just same basic man-centered, materialistic, self-justifying logic. And it destroys communities. Notice the, the second category of, of bad works in Crete. Notice Crete featured a number of cultural sins. See that there in verse 12? One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then Paul has in verse 13, this testimony is true. It's so true that there used to be a time where if you met someone who was really sort of rough and impolite and rude, uh, it used to be a time where people called them culturally Cretans. You're such a Cretan. Paul says this is true. So I call this cultural sins for two reasons. Not because the culture and the people are inherently inferior. That has a name. It's called racism. That's not what Paul is doing here. I call this a cultural sin for two reasons. Number one, this is the testimony of Crete's own poets and philosophers and prophets. So this is the assessment coming from the culture itself. Paul is quoting one of their own prophets as saying this. And number two, these sins have become the general character of the people of Crete. 
That's why I'm calling them cultural sins. They have risen to the level of defining life on that island. The poets describe it and the people live it. Art is imitating life in this quote right here. Today we might say hip-hop artists are the philosopher poets of the inner city. Hip-hop often tells us what, what's going on in the neighborhood, what people are thinking, what they're living for, what they are facing. So hip-hop can give us a sense then of the cultural sins that we face in our own day. Think of the music's materialism, its misogyny and sexual immorality, its hopelessness and despair and nihilism. It's abuse of drugs and alcohol. It's violence and profanity. We have to ask ourselves, are, are, are the things we hear in our music the cultural sins of our neighborhoods and of our people today? So just as a quick aside, notice what Paul is doing as a missionary strategy. He's studying the local culture to observe how the culture understands itself on its own terms so that he might then be able to engage the culture in a way that communicates the gospel effectively. More on that in a moment. But notice the impact that this environment has on people in Crete. Four things, verse 11, they are upsetting whole families. Number two, verse 15, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Verse 16, in the first part, number three, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And number four, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. We might summarize the effect of false teaching and unchecked cultural sin as basically destroying the family, corrupting the mind and the conscience, falsifying religious testimony, and destroying human potential itself. Beloved, false teaching and sin are not victimless crimes. And when you look at the creeps of the world, what do we see? Families in disarray, people calling darkness light and light darkness. What do we see? People who do a lot of God talk, but seem to deny the power of the living God himself. They're, they praise God with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. That's an old problem. And a pattern of life marked by disobedience and unfit for any good work. When as people made in the image of God, we are made for good works. It's a devastating effect of these bad works, this false teaching. So Paul says in verses 13 and 14, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Rebuke them sharply means to confront these things with clear truth. We cannot play around with these things. Sharp rebuke is how we protect against falsehoods entering into the church. Sharp rebuke is how we protect people from having their faith shipwrecked and, and destroyed. We need a good word ministry that opposes the bad work culture of fallen neighborhoods. And Christians are meant to live in places like this. To love people like this to engage issues like this. 
We're not meant to run away from such neighborhoods. Paul has left Titus there. Paul has been there himself. Paul is wanting to see the church grow there and thrive, that people will be sound in the faith in the midst of such difficulty and distress and dysfunction. And that means we're called to live cross-cultural lifestyles in a number of different ways. We are, as a church, we need to be committed to cross-cultural ministry. Your, your culture may not be the native culture of Anacostia. You may be coming from a different culture. As we said before, we have people here from about, uh, about 20% of our membership is, is, is immigrant from different countries altogether, different cultures altogether. But none of us come from a culture that does not have besetting sins. All of us come from fallen cultures that have characteristic sins that, that define them. Maybe you come from a different region of the country or a different ethnic background. But in order for us to minister effectively in this neighborhood, we've got to get particular about this neighborhood, understanding it, exegeting it, becoming a part of it on its own terms. So we've got to learn to embrace this place and its people. Now, learning to engage this neighborhood and its people on its own terms, that, that might, beloved, for some of us, be the first act of mercy that we commit. Because it's unmerciful to not do that. It's, it's cruel, actually. We've had folks who've encountered cultural differences here, and, and they ain't been ready. They, they ain't. They, they've experienced culture shock and, and not dealt with it well. I mean, they've heard some things that offended them. They've saw some things that scared them. They've felt some things that have surprised them. And all in the middle of it, they have felt like they did not understand and they were not understood. Now, the instinct when you're experiencing culture shock like that, the instinct is to reach for what you know and make everybody else conform to what you know. Try to, try to, ooh, we don't think like that where I'm from. Ooh, we don't say those kind of things where I'm from. Ooh, we don't have this in our neighborhood, forgetting that you've got other things in your neighborhood that need to be challenged by the gospel. And so what you try and do is sort of make everybody in this new neighborhood now conform to your norms, your standard, your culture. That's not gospel ministry. That's colonialism. So the first important merciful work we need to do is to exegete and understand our neighborhood and our neighbors on their own terms. And then we begin to earn the right to speak the gospel and to challenge some things that maybe need challenging. And oh, by the way, we begin to discover some things in our own lives that need challenging. So, so we want to be a community that, that begins to have more active conversations about cross-cultural ministry in our context, not because we're hung up on it, whatever that means. We want to have these conversations because we need to grow in this way because here's the truth. Unexamined cultural sins and cultural biases undermine gospel mission and gospel unity. That's the whole point of Galatians 2, why Paul rebukes Peter to his face. His unexamined prejudices were actually causing him to live contrary to the gospel when he thought he was in step with it. 
We'll leave that there. We'll come back to that at another time. Second point. So the bad works there in Crete were false teaching and cultural sins into which the gospel was meant to go. Now, let's see. There there are particular kinds of people who are best suited for that kind of ministry. This is where we want to see how the good news creates good works people. Notice Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Paul is referring to Jesus Christ. He said, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice now the redemption and the purification. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness. That means he he volunteered himself. He sacrificed himself. And when did he do that? When he went to the cross. He was giving himself there to accomplish two things, to redeem us or to buy us back from lawlessness, which is sin. We had been owned by sin. We've been controlled by sin. We were in a pattern of lawlessness, of rebellion against God's good standards. And Jesus gives himself in order to break those shackles in order to redeem us, in order to purchase us with his own blood so that we no longer belong to sin, but we belong to God. Now, when he redeemed us, we were dirty. We were dirty in our sin. We were muddy in our sin. We were like the prodigal when he was out in the pig pen. So the other thing that Jesus accomplishes in the cross is not just our redemption, but notice the word there, our purification. He washes us. He cleanses us. 1 John 1, 9 says of all unrighteousness, all of the former dirt of sin, all of the former mud of lawlessness, all of the gunk of rebellion against God by the blood of Christ is cleansed so that we share through Christ's sacrifice God's own holy character. We are accounted as righteous through the work of Jesus on the cross. Notice there, it's not like God did that with his son for us and then said, now y'all go run along. He wanted us. He wanted us to be his own possession. I got some stuff in my house that I don't just put out in the living room. Because y'all come over, eat chicken wings, be getting grease all on stuff. (laughs) I got some stuff in my house I don't even like my kids and my wife to mess with. Because they don't treat it like I treat it. I got an amen. (laughs) He he better be careful, though. (laughs) These are things that are precious to me. They're for my possession. I don't mind them looking at it. I don't want you messing with it, right? You know, you got some things like that. You come home, you know where you left it because you always leave it right there because that's a safe place and, and it ain't there. When you, who, who moved my stuff? Baby, you, you just start accusing people. Baby, you, you mess with my stuff? What Titus said? Titus, what you do with my stuff? You find out later you moved it because... <laughs> but, but those are our precious possessions. Beloved, don't you know that God saved you because he wanted to own you? He wanted to have you. 
He is jealous for you with a holy, godly jealousy. He loves you. His song over you is love. His banner over you is love. You know, the gospel is like the cross. It's like an, an Uncle Sam poster. You know, Uncle Sam, he's on there pointing with that finger, that top hat. What does he say? I want you. The cross is God pointing right at you, screaming, I want you. I want you for my own. I want you for my possession. I have given my son for you because I love you. Would you be mine? This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's that's what God is saying to you. Your life's not going right. You're feeling guilty and you don't know why because of certain sins. And and, and you didn't really want to be interested in this religion thing, but you got questions. And the more you ask your questions, the more you feel drawn to it. You know what's happening to you? God is just poking you in the heart saying, I want you. I want you. I want you. Would you be mine? Come and see what I've done for you. I've given my son for you to take away your sins that you might no longer be a slave to sin, but you might belong to me and you might no longer be dirty in my sight, but you might be entirely pure because of what Jesus has done. Would you be mine? And that's the question to you if you're not a Christian. Would you belong to God? And be his special possession? What in the world would make you say no to that question? Whatever that is, is an enemy of your soul. It's an idol, a false god. The true God says, turn from sin, believe in Jesus, and live. That's his offer to you this morning. Don't reject it. Repent of sin. Believe in Christ. Notice what happens when we do this, when we are redeemed by Jesus through his work on the cross and his purification of us, and we are owned and and gathered up together as God's own possessions. Now, he didn't just want a people who were just sort of like figurines, right? That's, that's, that's my mom's house. She's got a little coffee table there. She's got a thousand knickknacks on it. And, and can't nobody touch her knickknacks. That's how my mom and I are different. She put her stuff out in the living room and dare you to touch it. She has trained many a little kid. They would come over there and say, ah, don't touch that. Pop their hand, little kid draw back. Then try to sneak. Pop. <laughs> and for like 800 years, she's had her knickknacks on her table and nobody's moving. Right? That's not what God is doing. He's not setting up a mausoleum. He's not setting up a, a museum. He is actually gathering together a family that lives and moves and breathes and acts in the world. And here's how he wants us to be. Notice at the end of verse 14, zealous for good works. He wants us to be a people who are zealous for good works. Zealous means we burn for it. We are passionate about it. We are, we are driven by it. We are Like the prophet in the Old Testament, it's like fire shut up in our bones. We just have this burden, to use the language we sometimes use, to to do good. And in doing good, to show the, the, the goodness of God, that he's a good, good father. To show the mercy of God to a world that's hurting and broken. Let me tell you how important this is. We're talking about five commitments for 2020. And like last week, I want to stress something here. When I talk about making a commitment here, I'm not really talking about something voluntary and optional. I'm not really talking about something you go, well, you know, 
The super Christians can do that. I'm going to stay over here with the lackadaisical Christians. I'm talking about something that God actually requires of us. I'm talking about something that, that God actually calls us to, to make a hard, fast commitment to, not as a matter of, of optional choice, but calls us to as a matter of genuine Christian faith and the expression of that faith. So in a certain sense, if we are not committed to these things, we are not committed to uh, honest discipleship to Jesus. And to illustrate that, I want to give you about four or five texts real quickly in the scripture that show this connection between the gospel and conversion and good works and how God applauds it and commands it. I think of one of the first examples that come to mind was a short little fellow in Luke chapter 19. Y'all know him. His name was Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus invited Jesus to his home? And in Luke chapter 19, 8 and 9, this is what we read. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, already we challenged, aren't we? Zacchaeus said, I give half of everything I got to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house since also he is a son of Abraham. Not meaning that because he gives, he's going to be saved, but because he's saved, he gives. Salvation had come to that house when Jesus showed up, and, and the gospel had come to that house in the teaching of our Lord. And Zacchaeus had, had believed it and been freed, and freed so much that he was freed from his stuff. Freed to give half of it away. And, and more than that, as a tax collector, he probably had cheated a lot of people. And so he says, you know what? The law says if you cheat someone, you got to return it four times. And so if I have defrauded anybody, here's an open invitation. I cheated anybody in here, let me know. I'll give you four times what I took from you. <laughs> That's the freedom the gospel brings. But now I have discovered there are more than a few Christians who don't want that much freedom. They don't want to be free from their stuff. They don't want to just give their stuff to somebody else. I earn my stuff. I love my stuff. I work for my stuff. The word for that is slavery. The word for that is worship. So you bow to your stuff. You love your stuff. And Christ has come to free us from all other lesser loves that we might love the one greatest thing namely himself. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. Or, or think of another example. I love this example too. Dorcas. Anybody remember Dorcas in Acts chapter 9? This is what we read in Acts 9 verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She's full of it. This just, just came out of her, good works and acts of charity of all kind. And in the context of Acts chapter 9, Dorcas has died, and they have brought Peter over to where she has died, and everybody's crying and weeping bitterly and mourning for Dorcas. And this is what we read in verse, uh, verse 39. They took Peter to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. I wonder if we will be committed enough to good works that we'll actually leave some behind when we die. 
I mean, will all of our good works be exhausted when our mortal life is exhausted? Or will there be a testimony left behind so that everybody who knew us would weep that we are now not there anymore because we did so much good. And because we have done so much good, there'll still be stuff left that we were involved in and that we produce that will continue to bless those who are in need. Are we full of good works? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always, always, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this is something we're meant to be actively seeking, opportunity to do good to the household of God, but also to everyone else. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not even talking about doing something that comes down only to our own strength. God has already prepared the works. We're to walk in it, trusting in him, believing in him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, referring to godly women uh, there in the church service who, and how they're to clothe themselves. They're to clothe themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness. What is that? With good works. We're to dress ourselves in good works. That's our garment. It's normal in the New Testament Christian life. It's necessary in the New Testament community. Even for widows to qualify for support as widows, you realize that part of the qualification was that they were women of good works? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is what Paul writes there. Let a widow be enrolled... That is, add it to the list of widows. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. Then Paul begins to list as examples what some of those good works are. If she has brought up children, that's a good work, praise the Lord. Has shown hospitality, that's a good work. Has washed the feet of the saints, that's a real good work. Has cared for the afflicted. And has devoted herself to every good work. Which is why in the letter that we're in, Titus chapter 3, verse 14, 14, Paul writes these words. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So... Titus 3.14 puts on the agenda of disciple-making and discipleship learning to do good, which implies that this is not something we just do naturally. This is not something that we get by osmosis. This is something that we need the community of God for. This is something that we need teaching and instruction in. This is perhaps something we need to meditate on and diagnose in our own lives. To what extent have I learned to do good works for the blessing of people and the glory of the Lord. And since good works are evidence of genuine faith, they are commanded, not suggested. So some questions to think about. On a scale of 1 to 10, how committed would you say you are, personally, to doing good works or works of mercy in the neighborhood? 
this is a core objective for us, if this is a command in the scripture and we're, we're being called by God and as a church community, we're saying we want this to be distinctive about us as a church community, to what extent are each of us as members of this community devoted to doing good works? with the opportunities that we have and the resources that we have, sort of appropriate to yourself because your life ain't like my life. My life ain't like your life. It's got to sort of fit the lives we're in. But are we devoted? Number two, just reflect on this question. Have you, have you ever thought of mercy as a requirement of the Christian life? And if that's new to you, how does it impact you? What things does it rearrange in your thinking and your living? The third question. Well, I just gave that question to you. How would your life change? How would it have to change in order to make mercy a central commitment in how you follow Jesus? How would your life have to change and my life have to change in order to make mercy, doing good works, a central aspect of how we follow Jesus? Number four, as we said, learn to devote yourself to good works implies that we need teaching and training in order to do it effectively. So here's a question to ponder. What help do you need in order to grow in devotion in this area? What help do you need? Which brings us to our third and final point. We've talked about the the bad works context. We've talked about how the gospel, the good news, creates good work people. Now we want to think about the good works that lead to good life, the good life in communities. And I just want to cherry pick a couple from Titus and then use some illustrations from our life as a church uh, and encourage us as we conclude. Notice Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's striking that, 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 that reminder to be ready for every good work is nestled, I think, in the middle of two other types of good works. Verse 1, there is the submission type, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, uh, presidents, city council leaders, bosses in our schools or workplaces, principals, parents, pastors, that fundamentally we are people under authority. And, and one of the ways in which we display the goodness of the character of God is by being people who understand and uphold authority. Authority is a good thing. Since the 60s, it's been a disparaged thing. Bumper stickers question authority. And hear me, beloved, sinners abuse authority. So I'm not suggesting that everyone who's in authority is right about everything they say or do. And I'm not telling you to turn off your brain in examining what you're hearing from people who are in authority. But I am saying this, the way God designs authority, it is meant for our blessing. And coming under it orders our lives, protects our lives, and is a kind of good work that reveals to other people that authority is good. Submitting to it is good. Comes from God. 
It's for our blessing. So, so one, of the, one of the best good works we, we could do, just like today, like today, and I've been working really hard on this, so I'm preaching to myself right now. One of the best good works that we can do right now is stop having bad things to say about the president. I mean, I know he give us a lot of material. But I wonder if our, the ease with which we criticize elected officials isn't really just an echo of the deterioration of respect for authority. I wonder if it's, a, in other words, a kind of worldliness that's become acceptable to the church. I mean, one of the easy ways that we can do some good works in, in not just with regard to those in authority, but uh, good works with one another. Notice that the second cluster of things in verse 2, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy. Those things have to do with speech and kindness. You realize kindness is a good work? Being gentle with somebody and not rough, that's a good work. Being careful not to slander other people. Is a good work and not to gossip is a good work. And those two have become acceptable sins to trash somebody, to question the integrity or the motives of others, to be overly critical or critical at all instead of gracious. It's just so common in the world, so common in the church. And yet the good work would be to honor another, to speak well of them, to maybe, yes, acknowledge some fault and to say immediately, since we can't fix that, let's pray to the one who can. To dry up gossip, to dry up slander, to dry up evil speech so that we are in kind of a hothouse of gratitude and we are in the rich soil of thankfulness and encouragement. God knows we swim in a sea of discouragement out in the world from day to day. And so when we come into here, it ought to be coming into a respite from all of that and finding an uplifting word, finding an encouraging word, finding an exhortation or, or just finding a knowing silence with people who sit with us when we're hurting. Rather than one more condemnation, one more comment of suspicion, one more word of criticism. If we commit ourselves to criticism, we will be full-time employed until Jesus comes back. There's enough criticism to go around. But what this says is, be committed to kindness, gentleness, a good word. But it's not just that. Notice in Titus 3, verse 8, we're exhorted to all these things because in verses 3 to 7, the gospel has transformed us. Verse 3, we were disobedient and unruly ourselves, but, but the goodness and kindness of the Lord has appeared and, and saved us. And as a consequence of that great salvation, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, the pastor, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why? These things are profitable for people. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so that can help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Here's the question. 
How will you and I show our devotion to good works and our readiness to help people in need every day? Every day. Last week, I challenged you guys to, and challenged myself, to commit to sharing the gospel with somebody every week. Miss Carol met me at the door. It's only Miss Carol can do. She said, Pastor, I appreciate that word, but you know what? In the Bible, they share the gospel every day. Why we ain't sharing it every day? I like that, Miss Carol. I mean, you know, I was trying to get us up to once a week, you know. <laughs> but she right. If the Lord gives us opportunity, we should share the gospel every day. You know what else? Every day we should wake up, look in the mirror, and ask the Lord, how will you use me to do good today? Make me ready to do every kind of good work that's in my ability to do today. It requires that kind of intentionality. Think of your morning routine. Hit snooze. Now you're rushing. Brush teeth, wash your face. Hardly even look to see if things are where they're supposed to be. Get dressed. If you're addicted to coffee, you get some of that on the way out. In the car, you're driving, and now you're fussing at people, you know, because they in your way, because it's your street where no place supposed to be nobody out there. You know what I mean? You're making illegal left turns from the right turn lane. You're going to call nobody's name. You know, you get to work, and now you're trying to settle into things. You're grabbing up the papers that you really needed to review before you went into that meeting. And now you're going in that meeting and you're, you're cramming and you're struggling. You're trying to get this and that and the other done. And, and, and guess what? You've been just a little bit chippy with a coworker because you ain't have time to stop and say something kind. And that's your whole day. You're behind. You get to the back end of the day and you're back out in traffic. Ain't deep. Why don't we people stay home sometime? <laughs> what we going to eat? Right? And you cooking dinner for the family, but you didn't really want to because you weren't ready for that good work, <laughs> right? And so dinner's ready, and you slam it down on the table. <laughs> Come eat, you know. Food all jumbled up now. And kids like, well, you know, we eating or is this, you know, WWE? What's going on right now? You know? And then we just put it on loop. And that whole day, we just fighting for some time to ourselves. Don't get me wrong. I'm an introvert. I love time to myself. This is not a message against self-care. Get that in. Schedule that. Protect that. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm just talking about the easy way our hearts slide into selfishness and self-centeredness. And the easy way we miss opportunity to do good because we're not ready for it. The, The burden of the text here is to be ready so you don't have to get ready. Our people be ready for every good work, Titus 3, verse 1. Devote yourself to doing good works. Learn to do good works. Now, just like last week, there are some things we try to do as a church to create some sort of large-scale opportunities for doing good. But then there are many, many, many more things that you as individual members are doing in order to do good and to show mercy to our neighbors. If, if this sermon feels like some kind of chastisement, then 
I'm not communicating what I really feel about the value of this church. It's not a rebuke. It's, it's a challenge. It's an encouragement. It's an exhortation to do more and more as the day of the Lord comes along. But it's not a rebuke. It's not, it's not dissatisfaction. I don't want you to go away thinking that's what you've heard this morning. I want you to go away thinking the Lord has called me up higher. Right? We've done some good work. Think about some of the things we do as a, as a church, opportunities that we encourage as a church leadership and that we, we fund on some level. There's the benevolence ministry of the church, which helps people who are in need. Rental payments, preventions of evictions and the cutting off of utilities, clothing, help with transportation, all kinds of good work go on through the benevolence ministry, which is a consequence of your generous giving to the budget of the church. And I love the number of you who from time to time check up to say, how much money we got in benevolence? And those of you who uh, regularly, um, beyond your regular tithes and offerings, contribute to the benevolence fund. That's just an expression of the generosity and the good works that God does through his people. Um, One of the ministries we have the privilege of supporting is Christian Legal Aid DC. Provides legal uh, aid for community members in need. I mean, it's terrible to be poor and in legal trouble in this country. It's terrible. And so the work that Deb does and uh, Rob and all the volunteers over at Christian Legal Aid, vitally important for showing mercy to our neighbors in, in cases of urgent need. Or the House D.C. We support them financially. I have the privilege of serving on that board um, and trying to work with the board to help lead that organization. And there are a number of you who, who volunteer there. Christina volunteers there. Jamie volunteers there. Our sister Kathy Baskin has volunteered to mentor staff and things there. A number of you in different ways volunteering and serving at the House DC, who has been to us a partner organization almost from the first day until now. Praise the Lord. We mentioned the job fair last week. That's one of the most fun times for me. All of you come out, volunteer in various ways. You've been working behind the scenes to get employers there. And on the day of, we are loving and caring for uh, community members. You want to be encouraged in your faith to do good? Volunteer in the job fair. Friends of Ketchum. Had the privilege of supporting them for some small amount, but many of you volunteer. I was blessed to go to the uh, fundraiser event you guys had a couple of months ago, Jonna, and to see all the sort of ARC folks kind of behind the scenes serving there. Michael just running around doing all kinds of stuff. Jacqueline helping to do things. And forgive me if I didn't name you, but there's a number of you there serving, giving, doing good, blessing that elementary school. Because maybe the second worst thing to be in our neighborhood after uh, being poor and in the legal system is being in this neighborhood in the school system. School system that is intentionally impoverished by the funding formula of this city. So to see Christians step into that, to fight for educational justice and equity and to give of themselves to that work, tremendous. Here at the high school, The way you guys have volunteered here and served here uh, led them this year, this past year, to um, give to to the church. They gave it to me, but it really is for this church, um, a kind of community appreciation award. 
And so I, I was sitting in that banquet, listening to them talk about why they were giving this award, because I was puzzled. I was like, oh, why I'm here. Uh, if Christy hadn't, it's supposed to have been a surprise. If my wife hadn't, she knew I don't like surprises. If she hadn't told me, you got to come, baby, because they're going to give you an award, I wouldn't have been there. <laughs> and I was sitting there, what is this about? And I listened to Miss Coleman, uh, and I forget the sister, the social worker, the other sister's name just now. I listened to them talk about why they were giving this award to Pastor T. It's because of all the stuff y'all were doing. Volunteering at concession stands. Uh, providing funding for teachers to get supplies for their room. Uh, working out ways to get funding to the school as a whole so they could provide for field trips and uniforms for teams and all kinds of things like that. And this is when it hit me. I had long forgotten about this. About three years ago, the school was having a turkey outreach. And the uh, freezer and the refrigerator broke down. And so they had all these turkeys that they were going to have on hand for a week, but no way to store them. And they asked if the church would take turkeys home, keep it in the freezer and bring them back. And we did. I don't know, it must have been like 150 turkeys, man. Some of y'all had two, three turkeys. I was sure some of them turkeys wasn't coming back. <laughs> but a week or two later, they did. I completely forgot about that. And Miss Coleman says, who does stuff like that? Christians. Christians do stuff like that. And beloved, in many respects, that's a small thing wasn't some giant sacrifice that we were making as a church. But it's not the giant sacrifices that make all the difference, is it? It's the small thing. There's a question that, that pastors sometimes like to ask churches, um, their churches, when they want to sort of, you know, we have questions that we can use to get a sense of conviction from you, right? And there's a question that pastors sometimes like to ask. They say, hey, listen, if your church instantly were no longer in your neighborhood, would anybody notice that you were gone? It was sitting in that banquet for the Anacostia High School, the PTSO organization, and listening to them talk about you, that I think I've had the clearest perception that if ARC was not here, we would be missed. Which means God is using us. But there are greater works in this city yet to be done. There's more to do. And that's just stuff we've come together with on a church. DC 127 is another organization we support. Let me list a few things that you do individually. The number of you who prepare meals for those who are in need and deliver those meals. I don't know that I'll ever forget Kylie Walker helping an older man learn to read. Dennis meeting a man at Coffee and Convo whose mom is at home bedridden. And his going to sit with his mom and pray with his mom. I've lost count of the number of cars given by members to other members. I'm trying to get in that line. <laughs> My time when it comes. <laughs> People taking others into their home for short or extended periods of time to provide them a place to live. The, the efforts made to connect people with employment or to refer people to counseling, or to offer counseling yourself. Many of you have chosen vocations, callings, that are about all day mercy to others. 
number of you associate workers, Peter, Kanika, others. A number of you are attorneys who represent the poor for their, in their fight for justice or represent immigrants in their fight for justice. I think of our sister Tiffany and others. Travis is an attorney that works on religious freedom here and abroad. I can't forget the great number of you who are educators in the classroom, administrators, teaching, Jamie, Jalicia, Eric, so many more. Then there are those of you who are in the military, serving the country. That's a good work, particularly in the eyes of people who have learned to appreciate authority. Those of you who are in law enforcement, I think of our brother Tosin, he's with the Capitol Park Police. I think of our brother Brandon White, who's a Maryland State Trooper. Others, that's good work. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. That's good work all the time. Never get a day off. But then you also volunteer and serve people beyond your home. Many of you give to nonprofit and charitable organizations generously, frequently. I could go on and on, but I want to I press us to do more. As much as I'm able to see and name, as much as is evident to me as one of your pastors, I really do. I honestly feel like we're just getting started. We are just getting started. There's so much more that we can and should do and so much more by God's grace that we will learn to do. And as the text says, I want to insist on these things by asking, are we committed to showing mercy to our neighbors and our neighborhood? Our church and our neighborhood are full of deeds. Can we prove that we believe in God by showing more mercy to those in need? It's greater work for us to do. God's going to do it through us. We have every reason to be encouraged that our small acts of mercy or our great big old organized acts of mercy are going to be used by the Lord as a memorial to his gospel and his greatness and as a credit to his name. And by those works, men and women will praise God in heaven. So let's do this with faith. Let's do this with joy. Let's do this as much as we're able. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray, give us grace to show mercy. We have received mercy. Oh God, please keep us now from being hoarders of mercy. Help us to tell others where they can find it. Help us to point them to your goodness and your grace. Help us, O oh Lord, by your favor to make a difference in the lives of others. Apart from your grace, apart from your spirit, O oh Lord, we can do nothing. But if we abide in you, your word tells us we will bear much fruit. So help us to abide in you for the bearing of fruit to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.